Welcome back to Love God and Your Neighbor. I'm Laura Hutchinson, pastor of First Christian Church in Anniston, Alabama. And as usual, with me today is Gerald Roberts, our director of music on keyboard, Annie Ingram on trumpet and percussion, and Jason Wright is our soloist. It's good to have you all back today. I have to express at this time my extreme gratitude to my congregation for being so beautifully flexible this past year. COVID, as you may have noticed, is forcing us to roll with the changes like a raft on the waves in the ocean. And I have to say that my church is handling it better than a lot of congregations around the world. I am in touch with a lot of pastors who are dealing with very frustrated congregations who have a hard time dealing with constant change. But last week we had to cancel drive-in worship as a, as a precaution since four of our family households were in quarantine and because some weather reports were calling for rain. And while we didn't end up getting any rain, it was still good for us to be safer in light of the virus. And so this congregation was fine with that. First Christian has such a free spirit when it comes to unexpected change, which I think allows for the Holy Spirit to be more in control. First Christian, and now all of you listeners, are a blessing to serve, and I'm thankful for you. So now, let us prepare our hearts and minds for worship this day. Let us give thanks in our hearts for a God who loves us. Let us ask God to forgive us for the sins that we've committed. And let us bow down in humble supplication before our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let us worship in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Join me now as we sing our hymn of praise, I'm going to live so God can use me. God can use me anywhere. 
Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not, however, it is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling... I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Our text today is all about how the new Christians in Corinth are to come to terms with one feature of their pagan environment, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. It was a complex issue for sure. For one thing, practically all meat sold in the marketplace had been ritually slaughtered in connection with some temple. Could Christians continue to purchase and eat such meat at home? Almost the only alternative was to become vegetarians. So could they continue to attend dinner parties at the homes of their non-Christian friends where such food would be served? Could they continue to, quote, eat out? You know, the nearest things to restaurants in the ancient Mediterranean were the dining rooms attached to temples where civic and social as well as religious occasions were held. People regularly had birthday parties and wedding receptions at such places as part of normal social life. These were disputed points in several streams of early Christianity. The issue was not merely what is right for a Christian to eat, but 
how Christians were to fit into the pagan culture around them, how decisions on such issues affected the Christian mission, and how Christians of differing convictions on such issues were to live and work together in one church. And so Paul says, Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. An interesting dynamic among the Christians in Corinth at the time that this letter was written concerned the more liberal and sophisticated Christians as opposed to the more conservative ones. The first group, the liberals of Christians, of Christians, the liberals, felt strongly that they had such a knowledge of God that they could participate in the common cultural practices of their neighbors without being affected by it at all. They were strong in their faith, and they knew that what they did socially didn't affect their knowledge of the one true God, and so they hobnobbed with the elite and wealthy members of society. They reclined at their tables and they ate their food. They went to the wedding and birthday celebrations at the pagan community centers and they felt that their knowledge of God made them superior and strong enough to keep them safe. And Paul says, knowledge puffs up. There are a lot of Christians out there who are afraid of knowledge, don't you think? Many seminary friends and I had to deal with a lot of backlash from people in our lives and people from our churches who told us, quote, don't let that school take your Jesus away. They were afraid that our education would destroy our faith. But that is not what Paul is saying here. He is not making a sweeping condemnation against knowledge in general, but he is speaking against the arrogance that can come with it. He says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. He's saying here that it's more important to be known by God than for us to know anything. And he's also saying that it's more important to love others than it is to know something. And if our knowledge keeps us from loving others, then we've missed something big in the process. And Paul is saying that these liberated Christians of Corinth were acting puffed up and unloving towards other Christians in their midst. He said, Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now They think of the food that they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Paul is talking about new Christians who were so much a product of their culture that they could not see through it or past it yet. They still saw a meal as a religious ritual, not just something a human did to stay alive. 
They still saw meat butchered for the temples as being sacred in the eyes of the false gods they used to worship. And while they knew that there was only one true God, while they knew that all other idols were false, they had a long way to go before their marrow was fully purged entirely of the influence of their upbringing. And when these Christians saw other Christians eating at the tables of pagans and eating the meat sacrificed in the name of one God or another, then they could get very confused. It was common for a new convert to try to blend the religion of their culture with the religion of Jesus Christ. Jesus easily turned into yet another pagan god of their world, and the new Christians were easily lost. Paul was trying, was saying that if these liberated Christians truly loved God, then they would love their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they would do whatever it took to help keep them on the path of righteousness, even if it meant sacrificing their own comforts and pleasures, even to the point of becoming vegetarians. Paul says, food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when thus, when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. At the 1993 annual meeting of the American Heart Association, 300,000 doctors, nurses, and researchers met in Atlanta to discuss, among other things, the importance of a low-fat diet and how it keeps our hearts healthy. Yet during mealtimes, they consumed fat-filled fast foods, such as bacon cheeseburgers and fries, at about the same rate as people from other conventions. When one cardiologist was asked whether or not he is par- his partaking in high-fat meals set a bad example, he said, not me, because I took my name tag off. You see, even if what we're doing causes no real harm to ourselves, what if it causes another person to stumble? Those heart doctors and nurses and researchers were probably careful most of their life, and they were probably splurging while they were at this this uh, convention. But here they were representing heart health and eating all that fast food. Are we being selfish if we don't seem to care what our actions mean to other people? When I graduated from college, I went home to Atlanta and took a job as the youth director of my home church's youth group. I worked under the Minister of Children and Youth, and my job was focused only on the teenagers. It was a strange transition for me, to be sure. You see, just weeks earlier, I had been in college, living my life however I wanted to live it, and I didn't have to worry about anyone but myself. And suddenly, I was the designated role model for 40 highly influential teens. I had to do some serious soul searching to figure out what that meant for my life. Well, one time, my sister, who was still in college, threw a party at my house. 
She invited some people that we'd grown up with that's in that same youth program who were also still in college, just a year or two younger than me. And I was fine with the whole party thing until one of our friends showed up with her high school-aged brother who was still in the youth group, my youth group, that I was directing. In the end, I had to leave my own party and go somewhere else because my sister and her friends would not listen to me when I said he had to go. And I realized for the first time just how important my whole life was. Not just the life that I lived in front of my youth. The reason it was especially important that I set a strong and consistent example in the way I lived my life was because I had some kids in my program who were already struggling with alcohol and drugs. When they heard me drinking, when they heard about me drinking with my friends from time to time, they took that as a green light to do all of the things that didn't matter to me, but were actually going to kill them one day. Their problems were so bad that a few of them ended up in rehab before they ever graduated from high school. So for me, drinking was not a problem. I could have a glass of wine and it didn't affect my life or my walk with God in any way. But those kids were looking to me for permission to do all the things that would have destroyed their relationship with God in a heartbeat. I decided I couldn't live with that. I loved them too much. The Christians in Corinth at that time were worshiping a monotheistic God in the midst of a totally pagan culture, and they were trying to figure out how to manage that. Well, we are Christians living in a totally idolatrous culture as well, but it's even harder for us to figure out what is right and what is wrong. And that's because our culture is so muddled and confusing. When people call the U.S. a melting pot, they are not kidding. Not only are we a melting pot of races, which is only a good thing and is something that I absolutely love about our country, we are also a melting pot of religions and cultures, also a great thing, as long as we're discerning enough to know what practice belongs to which religion, what that practice really means, and how that practice might be interpreted by others. So many other religious practices have melted into our understanding of normal that we no longer realize that we're even, that they're even contrary to our faith or that they have anything to do with faith at all. In addition to that, so many social practices have become so accepted and normal to us that we don't realize that they are also detrimental to our faith and our relationship with God. That is why if we truly love our fellow human being, it is so important how we live our lives. Our lives matter more than we can possibly know. The way we live our lives can mean life or death for another person who is looking to us as an example. And the fact is we have no idea who is watching and paying attention to our words and actions. And I guarantee you there are more people watching you than you will ever realize. Many of you know that I don't practice yoga because it's a Hindu worship practice and I don't think God would be happy with me for doing it, especially because I'm a pastor and a leader of Christians. I know that lots of Christians practice yoga. After all, it's become such a common practice in our culture that most people have no idea where it comes from or what the poses mean to people of the Hindu faith. I mean, most fitness centers, YMCAs, and even some churches teach weekly yoga classes. 
And I know lots of Christians who have done yoga for years, and it hasn't influenced their faith in any way. Which means either it hasn't been negative for them or their walk with, well, which means it has not been negative for them or their walk with God. And that's either because they are discerning enough to know when they're hearing faith influencing Hindu doctrine and can ignore it, or because the classes they take are so watered down that they're just getting the exercise and relaxation bits without the religious bits. However, I've also known many Christians who got really into yoga, who were so influenced by the philosophy and religious beliefs taught by their yogi masters that they eventually slipped so completely away from their Christian practices and faith that they eventually became practicing Hindus instead. So I can't, as a minister of Christ, risk influencing another Christian to get sucked into that trap because they knew that I did yoga. I don't believe that Hindu gods exist, so I wouldn't really be, it wouldn't be dangerous for me to do yoga for the exercise, but many others might not be so discerning. Paul is calling for purity in our faith and in our life. He says that what we do matters. If it doesn't matter to us, then it matters to someone else. And if it matters to someone else, then we should strive to only do and say the things that will lead a person into a stronger relationship with the one true God. A few years after the incident with the party at my house, the youth minister and I took the leaders of the youth group to the General Assembly of the Christian Church held that year in Denver, Colorado. Boy, was it a great experience for all of us. There we were going to an enormous convention center filled with thousands of disciples from all over the country and the world. Plus, we were staying in a beautiful hotel with a pool, a restaurant, and a really cool bar. One evening, the youth minister, Nancy, let me have the evening off so I could go hang out with some of my colleagues and friends. So I went down to the first floor and hung out with them in that very same really cool bar. I got water to drink. Not because I was consciously deciding not to be a bad influence. I mean, everyone else there was drinking. You know, like Episcopalians, disciples don't generally have an issue with consuming alcohol. But I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have any money, let's be honest. So water it was. And we all hung out. We laughed. We talked. Had a wonderful time. And the next day, I was shocked to find out that my kids waited up for me to get back to my room. They'd spied on me as I walked down the hall past their rooms to mine. They even went around the next day asking the other ministers if I'd been drinking with them the night before. I was so relieved when everyone had to say, no, actually, I think she was just drinking water all night. I have never been so grateful for being so broke. Well, drinking or not drinking is not the issue here, of course. It was just the issue for those kids at that time. I could just have easily told a story about going to a Hindu ashram to pray and meditate or of cussing a lot in public. Because I'm a strong Christian and because I have a lot of knowledge of the one true God, either of those things might not hurt or help me in any way. However, Paul tells us here that if it doesn't matter to us, then it matters to someone else. And if it matters to someone else, then we should strive to only do and say the things that will lead a person into a stronger relationship with the one true God. 
Our lives are a witness to the people around us. And Paul is encouraging us to always keep that in mind, no matter what we're doing and no matter where we are. So let's encourage one another in this area and practice loving others by living in a way that leads them to a stronger relationship with God through Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read to you a statement by Alexander Campbell, a founder of this movement we call the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. It comes from our chalice hymnal, number 388. Upon the loaf and upon the cup of the Lord, in letters which speak not to the eye, but to the heart of every disciple, is inscribed, When this you see, remember me. Indeed, the Lord says to each disciple when he receives the symbols into his hand, this is my body broken for you. The loaf is thus constituted a representation of his body, first whole, then wounded for our sins. The cup is thus instituted a representation of his blood, once his life, but now poured out to cleanse us from our sins. This meal is sacred for what it represents, and yet it is not exclusive. Every human being who has ever taken breath since the death of Christ has been invited by God to participate in this holy ritual. You are invited to share in the bread and the cup of Jesus' table. On the night when the Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, blessed it, and said, This is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, blessed it, and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. 
As we take this bread and this cup, may we be guided to live in such a way as to lead others to you. Please bless this meal to the nourishment of our souls. Amen. Take and eat the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Let us sing together our communion hymn, Bread of the World in Mercy Broken. Remembrance, which you can find printed in the About This Episode segment of the podcast. By partaking in this meal, we remember that Christ was born. Christ, Christ died. Christ was raised. Christ, Christ will come again. This is the mystery of our faith. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. As you go from this place, know that your life matters. The way you live your life matters. You matter to the believers and non-believers in your midst, and you matter to the body of Christ. Let's sing together our hymn of sending forth, Living for Jesus.